history. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, as you open up to the book of Proverbs, chapter 29 will be in verse 2. Proverbs 29 will be in verse 2. Now, before I get to the text, I've got a couple of things I want to do. I want to tell you some dad jokes, and I also want to rag on socialism a bit. So it's like peak Chris right here. It's basically my truest self. Uh, first, the dad jokes. Uh, the cannibal, a cannibal ate an optimist, but he couldn't keep him down. And um, an optimist falls off a mountain cliff, and as he plummets to the ground, he observes to himself, well, so far so good. <laughs> I bring those up because society does not seem to be going so well. And I want to talk today about a kind of godly optimism that I believe is our actual responsibility, given what we just sang. Uh, the world is not going so well right now because of, of various expressions of one particular ideology amongst all others, and that being Marxism. Marx, as a man, was sort of a failure to launch, live off your parents' money kind of guy. And it turns out that his ideology initially was the same. It was similar in the failure to launch. When it did not come to pass, some of his adherents thought, well, we need to figure out what's going wrong. And so a man named Antonio Gramsci shifted Marxism from being mostly economic to being cultural. And he is the father of critical theory. And you may have heard of that. So through Gramsci, Marxism actually morphed into a religious undertaking, an explicitly religious undertaking. Sometime in the early 1900s, Gramsci wrote the following, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. So all due respect to those who have told me to stay in my lane, I am in my lane. You should maybe consider if you telling me what my lane is, is your lane. The truth is, is that there is a new religious threat that is beyond merely sort of a blip on the potential radar of difficulties and has actually become a real viable alternative presented to people. And one of the most dangerous things about heresies in general is that they present themselves as the real deal. And so we're not being offered, as explicit to Gramsci's idea, we're not being offered like, hey, you have Christianity here, let me give you something else. We have something else as a parasitic force attaching itself to Christianity. If you wanna know what I'm about, kind of like what my life is about, Acts 20 is your place to go. Uh, specifically, Paul's charge to the Ephesian elders. And one of the things he says to the Ephesian elders after clearly demonstrating his love for them, and not simply in word, but also in deed. He says, when I depart, wolves will come in. And so one of the functions of the church is to look for the wolves that would come in. And certainly Gramsci is a wolf, and Gramscianism is a wolf. Well, in 1972, a Gramscian socialist named Her Herbert Marcuse wrote the following. Uh, He's talking about another guy named Rudy Duchke. He says, 
To extend the base of the student movement, Ducci has proposed the strategy of a long march through the institutions, working against the established institutions while working within them, but not simply by boring from within, rather than doing the job, learning how to program and read computers, how to teach at all levels of education, how to use the mass media, how to organize production, how to recognize and askew planned obsolescence, how to design, so on and so forth. And so now we have what, had, this is just an articulation of something that had happened previously. Essentially, the socialists said, what about this? What if we went and got jobs? Which turned out to be the secret. The secret all along to promulgating this new religion was to go out and do work. Do work in all of the various institutions. And so if you've heard the phrase, a long march through the institutions, that's what's going on there. Now, you'll see in a moment that that itself is parasitic. But I wanted to use those two things, dad jokes about optimism, and sort of this idea of a long march through the institutions and the reason why the world is crumbling quickly. I would, I would, if I had a, a editorial power over the, uh, like kind of the official formal logic dictionary, I would go in there and like cancel out um, the slippery slope argument as a fallacy. It's like we're in emergency suspension of the slippery slope fallacy because we are officially in a slippery slope. That is no longer a fallacy. We're, it's, like things are happening and the reason that they're happening is religious and not political, thank you. And it's, we can't count on our religious enemies. We can't count on the devil to say, hey, I'm not actually doing political things, I'm doing religious things. He lies. So we are in this shape because of the long march through the institutions, which has been successfully undertaken, well, in, with including the formation of the public school system, so on and so forth, it's, it's been a while. That's all, that's all we need to know. Now, how would optimism and this interact? Well, look at our text, Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Now, we're going to see two interpretations of this text this morning. There are two viable and necessary interpretations of this text. One that focuses on Christ and one that focuses on you and me. And then we're going to see, as the third point, we're going to look at you and me first and then Christ, and then we're going to see how these two interpretations of this text intersect. So let's think about this text and just kind of break down some of its, uh, some of its contingent parts. The first, time, first thing we see is this phrase, when the righteous increase. Now, the word increase here means to rise or advance. Kind of the number one scholarly commentator, uh, Kitchen. Well, Kitchen's probably not number one, but he's one of the main uh, commentators on Proverbs. He, he writes of this word increase. The word can describe either multiplication of numbers or advancement in influence. Here the contrast is with rules. See that in the text? It says the righteous increase over here, the wicked rule. We know about our parallelism and our contrasting in Proverbs, that these, these two words are complementing each other and giving us information about one another. He says that the contrast with rules, we know that the word in, increase indicates no, influence. The righteous are increasing 
in influence. So why is the world as it is today, why is our world so much different than it was even just 10, 15, 20 years ago? And, and why is it so, why is it becoming increasingly third worldian with no signs of it ending? It's like, well, the wicked are ruling. And the next thing to see here is the phrase rejoicing and groaning. And I think it's very important that you understand that rejoicing and groaning are not merely people sort of in an audience observing the rise and fall of kings and like being happy when a good one comes in and being sad when a bad one comes in. The rejoicing and groaning are essentially almost involuntary verbalizations of real things these people are experiencing as a result of these leaders. So this isn't just a bunch of people clapping and saying, yeah, a good guy got in, or, or boo, a bad one's in. No, this, these are people who are suffering or flourishing. And when they're suffering, they groan, and when they're flourishing, they rejoice. So under in this interpretation, which I think is probably the original author's intended interpretation, who are the people? I think the way to say this is, who are the people? The people are everybody but you as individuals, all right? Just bear with me. So who are the people? Everybody but you. Where are you? You are either the righteous or the wicked. If you are wicked, then please stop leading things. Please. I don't know how much more I can take. I'm just kidding. I can take a lot more. Your leadership, if you are wicked, is going to lead to human suffering, described in this text as groaning. But if you are righteous, then you need to do what you can. This is, I think the text is saying, if you are righteous, then you need to do what you can to advance in your specific realms of influence. Why? For the sake of your neighbor so that people can flourish. Because when the righteous advance, the people flourish. If you are righteous, get as close to the top as you can, as quickly as you can, without becoming wicked, because then you will do us no good. I think that's the idea of this proverb. It's encouraging the righteous to advance not out of a sake of ambition because that's what always gets levied at people who are trying to advance. There's the tall poppy syndrome. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And there's all this envy in the world and so on and so forth. It's interesting. There's, there's three kind of predictions of doom that happened, you know, maybe less than 100 years ago. These three writers, Orwell, um, oh my goodness, Grace did her thesis on, I'm forgetting his name. Who wrote Animal Farm? No, okay. Um, Huxley, thank you. Thank you. So, so Orwell's got sort of like, this is the, the end is going to come through, uh, through like screwing up truth and speech and so on and so forth. Huxley's like, no, it's going to be a drug. And Ayn Rand is like, it's going to be envy, right? And so this text is essentially saying, no, you trying to do a better job in all the things going on in your life, you trying to increase your influence. If you are righteous, this is an expression of loving your neighbor, right? So we're, we're removing any kind of envious, green-eyed monster thing going on in our church. And we're like, man, I am so happy that you are better off 
now than you were in terms of influence. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy you're a better dad than you used to be. I'm so ha happy you're a better mom than you used to be. I'm so happy you're considered running for political office. No green-eyed monsters here. We're not concerned about the, I mean, obviously we're concerned at some level about sinful ambition, but we know this text to be true. We want our neighbors to rejoice. We want life to be better for people. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves. And this text is telling us there's a way for us to do that. It is for the righteous to advance. Now, here's a question. How do you know if you're righteous? Now, here I am not going to build you up and trick you and pull the rug out from under you. That is not what this text is talking about. This text is not talking about perfection. Friends, as long as the church keeps shooting each other in the rear end, stabbing each other in the back, when our perfection is shown lacking, the righteous won't advance because we need each other to advance. And so like, the, like every time we look at each other and we're like, well, I would have said that differently or yeah, but he has a different perspective on this thing or yeah, but he's wrong over here. It's like, is he wicked? No. Is he righteous? Here's how I would, here's some questions you could ask to, to wonder if, if you fit into the category described here. Has, has God declared you righteous in Jesus Christ? Well, if so, we're kind of done talking. Romans 8, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Do you know how, like, all the things, all the entities that hate you, the world, the flesh, the devil, none of them want you to feel righteous in Christ. They're okay with you feeling righteous in yourself. They're okay with you feeling extraordinarily guilty and shameful. But, man, a person who feels righteous in Christ, I think that's best summed up with something Napoleon once said. He said, I would rather face a thousand soldiers well-armed to the teeth than one Calvinist who thought he was doing the will of God. No one wants you to feel righteous in Christ. Except Christ, and hopefully except us, right? So has God declared you righteous in Christ? If so, you are righteous. Would, here's the second question, a little more practical. Would you take advantage of a weak person? I think it's a really good question to ask yourself. I think that there are men right now who are on the sidelines from advance because of their uh, engagement with pornography, which is essentially an aid in engaging in an economy of exploitation and usury. So we have got to make sure that we are not taking advantage of weak people. You're not righteous, if you go through Proverbs, I could proof text this, you're not righteous if you're taking advantage of weak people. Another, another question would be, do you believe in absolute truth? We, would, we could use some of that. The, the bar is not high. Um, another one would be, are you concerned about possibly being corrupted? Oh my goodness. We want you somewhere more important than you are now. If these things are true of you, then you fit this category of a righteous person. Um, here, here's another one. Um, no, that was it. Are you concerned with your ability to be corrupted? Do you believe in absolute truth? Would you take advantage of a weak person? And has God declared you righteous in Christ? Friends, again, I'm not trying to pull the rug out, of anyone, out from under anyone. I know many of you well enough to say, in this proverb, your advancement through the institutions 
will lead to many rejoicing. Now, all things being equal, there's a million other questions involved in this process. We're not jumping at every promotion. The truth is, is that God's going to take care of you. He's going to bless you. And you are not living in a, a, from a position of weakness or scarcity. God's blessings are just going to be there for you. We have to learn to govern them well. But this text describes many of you, hopefully all of you, and it tells me that I should tell you, you need to make your own advance through the institutions. The truth is, is that if you may have noticed when I was telling you about these socialist demons, that uh, most of them were German. We've got to get these German, uh, partly German, we've got to get the, at some point, we just need to figure out like what we're gonna do with that. I don't know that we've really resolved that issue. Um, what, you, what you may have noticed is they, many of them were German. And what I would like to point out to you is that what they were doing was simply hijacking probably number two most fundamental truth that Luther discovered in the Reformation, which is the doctrine of vocation. Do you see what I'm saying? Luther said to everyone, you can serve to the advance the kingdom of God if you go into your vocation and pursue God's glory in that vocation. And so what we've got, essentially, with these Gramscian long march through the institution types is a hijacking of what Luther was telling us all along, what Luther was telling the church for, for at this point, centuries. Stuff like, God does not need our good works, but your neighbor does. Stuff like, if you find yourself in a work by which you accomplish something good for God, or the holy, or yourself but not for your neighbor alone, then you should know that work is not a good work. I would dial some of this down a little bit, but let's just let Luther blaze for a minute. For each one ought to live, speak, act, hear, suffer, and die in love and service for another, even for one's enemies, a husband for his wife and children, a wife for her husband, children for their parents, servants for their masters, masters for their servants, rulers for their subjects, and subjects for their rulers, so that one's hand, mouth, eye, foot, heart, and desire is for others. These are Christian works, good in nature. So, a socialist at this stage, in our experience right now, living in this world at this time, are telling us, if we're paying attention, the truthfulness of what Luther's saying. The kingdom of something will be advanced by those who diligently go to work, pursuing excellence in their various vocational roles and responsibilities. Some kingdom will advance. And if we want people to rejoice and be happy, if we want human flourishing rather than groaning and, and Venezuela with... Uh, you know, more land, we need to ensure that we, those who are not perfect, would say righteous in a perfect sense, but we who have been declared righteous by Jesus Christ, who literally would stay up late at night feeling guilty over taking advantage of a weak person, who legitimately do worry that we could be corrupted by sin and evil, who believe in absolute truth. Friends, this is simply the charge of this message, at least half of it, we must be 
wisely, humbly, prayerfully, ambitious. And above all, practically ambitious. We must look at what God has given us and say, how can I make the best of this thing? And in terms of the people to be valued or exalted in our midst, parents of young children are sort of our superheroes. They, they are the people we cheer along and pray for and equip because we understand that they have a uh, disproportionate role in helping not just their kids to be safe or not, 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 to, not to be fall down this path or that path. No, we're going to raise kids who advance and increase so that the people will rejoice. Because we want to love not only our neighbor to the left of us, to the right of us, but also the neighbor 100 years in front of us. Luther wore many hats, but I believe that when he was talking about the doctrine of vocation, he was mostly wearing a pastoral hat. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, we read that God gave the church apostles, prophets, and evangelists, shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, what is the work of ministry? Well, does that include greeting and, and nursery work and working the slides? Certainly. That is not the primary thrust. The work of ministry is the job you have right now and the job you will have in 10 years. The work of ministry are the kids that you're raising. The work of ministry is your lawn. The, the work of ministry is, the, is considering running for some local public office. The work of ministry is you bringing all of Christ to all of life. And what is a pastor's job, according to this text? A pastor's job isn't to make sure you, I mean, this is necessary, but isn't to make sure we have greeters or, or people that are working the slides. We do those things. But the pastor's job, the church's job, is to help you fulfill Proverbs 29.2. When you go back to Ephesians 2, you see that we are his workmanship. The word there is poema. We are, his, we are God's poem. We're his epic odyssey poem. Each one of us created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is not shifting to a different kind of good work in Ephesians 4. He's carrying on the thought in 4 that he established in 2. You were created by God to go out into the world and rule and subdue and be excellent and advance for the sake of your neighbor. And it's the church's job to help you get there. Now let's talk about Christ. Let's look at the text again, Proverbs 29, 2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Here's another thing that we see in the book of Ephesians, if you happen to turn there. Every human being on earth is serving one of two rulers. Every human being on earth is serving one of two rulers. One is entirely wicked, and the other is entirely, perfectly righteous. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So we were all part of this kingdom that was causing us much suffering. 
whether we knew enough of that, whether we, whether we understood the suffering enough to actually groan or not, we were all under the wicked king. And Jesus came and he rescued us from that kingdom by binding that strong man. And then verse 4 through 7 of Ephesians 2, the very next verse, says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. But it says that he raised us up with him and seated us with him. I have one question for you. What kind of seat was that that Jesus is sitting on? Yeah, it's a, it's a throne. So the most immediate interpretation, the one that the original author probably had in mind, was we need to make sure that we're the kind of land that promotes righteous people to rule. That's good for people. But the, one, the other interpretation, the Christological interpretation, I have no doubt the Godhead looked at each other with a wink when they inspired the, the text itself. The, the Christological and the most, fulfilled, the most full interpretation of this is people are going to live under two kings. And those that live under the rule of King Jesus will rejoice. And those that live under the wicked king they will groan. Now I say kings, Satan actually has no authority and Jesus actually has all authority. So I'm actually not arguing that there are two kings wrestling over the world right now. King Jesus has won the victory. But many do not know that. Many do not live according to that. So the most the, the idea of this Christological, like what are we being called to do with this Christological interpretation? So the first inter interpretation is like we need to get busy. We need to go do the best we can, all things being equal. Pastoral care and wisdom, happy to come alongside you and help you think through the hard questions. But generally speaking, this is our marching orders. We need to do better for the sake of our neighbors. So what's the Christological imperative? What's the thing we're being called to do? We're just being called to rejoice, guys. That's our role in this second interpretation. We're just being called to rejoice. As the old hymn says that shouldn't only be sung at Christmas, joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Now, in this interpretation, the Christological interpretation, individual in advancement through the institution still matters, but it is secondary to the marvelous news that Jesus is Lord. In fact, it is only because Jesus is Lord that any of us would dare to take a step forward out of the line of conformity and try There's this uh, phrase that was a big deal when I was a kid. And it was when they started selling cologne to men. And I think that men were struggling with the concept at the time. And so there was like a bit of an education campaign. And there was, I, remember, I remember there was an ad for something called like, make such and such. I think it was probably Dracar. You guys remember Dracar? Make Dracar your signature scent. And man, every kid in seventh grade, man, it's like, anyway, 
this idea of signature scent. Here is sort of a dividing line for me, who is someone who's very aware of the political realities between me and many other Christians I hear talking about these things. My signature scent, our signature scent as Christians must be joy. Must be joy. Not alarmism, not reactivity, not grumbling. And sure as heck not anger. God help me. Joy. Why? Why joy? Well, because Jesus is in charge. That's why. Jesus is in charge. When the angel Gabriel brought glad tidings of great joy to Mary, he said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, his king, and to his kingdom there will be no end. Now, Gabriel, thankfully, was not a dispensationalist. He's basically citing Isaiah here. In Isaiah chapter 9, we see, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and evermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. So for those of us who see Jesus on the throne with his righteousness increasing, or as Lewis would say, for those of us who see that Aslan is on the move, we have a first and foremost responsibility our prime directive, we need to be joyful people. We need to be joyful people. Now, let's talk about how these two interpretations work together. The first is, if you are righteous, do your best to advance. Your advancement will lead to people's rejoicing. The second is, Jesus is the righteous one. He is king. Let us rejoice. They are both true, and they work together. And I would summarize it this way. The phrase long march through the institutions can't help but make me think of some kind of drab Soviet duty. And I'm not against those phrases. I would, I would sing a hymn with that in it, but there's something about long march that sounds very communisty to me. Kind of you will, know no, you will own nothing and be happy kind of, you know, Klaus Schwabi. So what I would suggest is that we have a, joy, a joyful journey through the institutions. We're still doing the same stuff. We're taking ground. But we are taking ground as an expression of joy in Christ and over what Christ has done. Let me see if I can show you three ways that this sort of plays out. Because I think that we're in a, a particular moment in time where being aware of how to select leaders, Christian leaders, is going to be very important. So the first one is, I want you to think of joy as a credential. 
I want you to think of joy as a necessary credential. I think we're all kind of looking at all these people who are standing up and offering their services to be new lord and empire of the world, emperor of the world, and we're like, okay, like, maybe. I mean, who are you? And should I trust you? Should I not? There are lots of Christian men, in particular, volunteering to rule and subdue right now. I don't know if you've noticed. Here's what I would suggest. One of the strategies of the darkness, if it can't just get the light to stop, is to get the light to be compromised and to take on features of the darkness. What are features of the darkness? Angered, embittered, panicked masculinity, amongst many other things. So what I'm suggesting is is that the joy of the Lord is not only our strength, which we'll see in a moment, it's also our disinfectant. And it's a kind of credential Because if you aren't joyful, then I don't believe that you really believe that Jesus is in charge. And if you don't really believe that Jesus is in charge, I don't think you should be in charge of anything. So joy is actually a kind of credential. Now, there is this sort of toothless, suburban joy. I'm not talking about like a fake joy. And I'm not talking about a joy without teeth a joy without godly anger or any of those things. But I am saying that if the fundamental tone of your multicolored heart isn't, I am happy and confident because Jesus is on the throne. Well, maybe you don't actually believe that Jesus is on the throne. Proverbs 29.2 says that when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And when the wicked rule, the people groan. And I'm hearing a lot of groaning from Christians who say they believe that the righteous one is in charge. It's like, maybe you don't actually believe that. Maybe you don't believe that Jesus is on the throne and that that throne is relevant in this world. Now, that's one idea. One thing to look for. One way these two interpretations work together. We see joy as a kind of credential. Do you really believe this? If so, you should have joy. Number two, joy is a vehicle. The darkness basically just wants the light to give up, to look at this mess and say it's all irreparable, which is really hard for a person who was saved out of utter damnation to believe that anything is irreparable, by the way. Um, But anyway, the darkness wants us to feel that way. That's what the book of Nehemiah is about. It's about demoralization. You should read it, I imagine, in a, a year or so when things get really fun, we'll preach through Nehemiah. But in Nehemiah, there's this particular phrase that is crucial to us and highly relevant to our text. Nehemiah was the governor and Ezra the priest. This is in chapter 9 and the scribe. And the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength, friends, not not our grieving, not our groaning. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, why is it that the joy of the Lord is our strength? Well, obviously, one of the reasons is that you, it's, it's evidence that you believe that Jesus is in charge. But I think there's something else going on here. I'm sure there's a lot I'm not seeing. 
this idea of joy as a vehicle. Consider two cars. Um, I'm almost done. Just, just a quick word. Two cars, one that's like a Ferrari or something, and the other, it's like an old Jeep. Not the new Jeeps that people buy and bolt $50,000 worth of accessories on. That'd be the wrong image here. Just a good old reliable Larson Jeep, you know, just a good righteous man's Jeep, all right? All right, so you, you got these two cars in your mind, and depending on what you were trying to do, you would pick one or the other. So what are we trying to do? Well, we are trying to engage in a multi-generational response to the good news that Jesus is Lord. What we are trying to do is engage in a multi-generational response to the good news that Jesus is Lord and that there is not a single square inch of creation over which Christ does not exclaim mine. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to fulfill Proverbs 29, 2, in all of our various little, seemingly little human ways, all the roles that God has given us as parents and as, as brothers and sisters and as friends and as workers and as entrepreneurs and so on and so forth, trying to fulfill that, why would the Jeep be the better choice? Well, we most likely have a long road ahead of us, and you would think, well, you know, that Ferrari, that fancy new high horsepower, high talent, high charisma thing, like, that's going to get us there much more quickly. Except the road is not smooth. The road ahead is not smooth. It's long, and yes, we could cover a lot of ground by finding highly dynamic, charismatic preachers, teachers, people that are great on social media, and so on and so forth, and man, we could just cover a ton of ground that was, nope, you want the Jeep. Let me tell you why. Because the road is super rough, and the main feature of a Jeep, which was invented during wartime, is that it has this ultra-low gear. Now, car guys are going to be more attuned to this illustration than others. A Jeep has this ultra-low gear that puts so much of the engine's power into the wheels. But it goes, what, probably like five miles an hour or something? But it can't basically, basically can't be stopped. It, it, it'll basically crawl over anything if it's in this ultra-low gear. So how does one become a Jeep? Because that's what I think we need. I think we need Jeep men. I don't think we need bulldozer men. I don't think we need Ferrari men. I think we need Jeep men. How does one become a Jeep? Well, what we're talking about, translating it into the scriptures, is the uh, virtue of endurance. And endurance is merely courage in a low gear. Do you understand that? Endurance is merely courage in a low gear. It is able to take uncertainty at it, which is very painful. It's able to take uncertainty without having to rush through it to resolve the uncertainty and the tension. We need Jeep men. Endurance is simply courage in low gear. Endurance, for those who know, is courage with the hubs locked. It's, it's, it's courage at a crawl, which is the kind of courage you need for what we're talking about today. We don't need any reactive people. We need Jeep people. Christ-like courage is what I'm talking about. Now, where does this Jeep kind of endurance courage come from? Well, Jesus as always, is our model, and he has shown us what endurance is. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. How do we make our slow, joyful journey through the institutions, through the world? Where does endurance come from? It comes from joy. You endure for the joy set before you. And the joy set before us isn't merely future eternal glory. The joy set before us is that Jesus is on the throne right now. And he is absolutely in charge so that not a single hair of your head may be harmed without his sovereign and kind say-so. What kind of seat is Jesus on? He's on the throne. So what I'm arguing for here is a kind of optimism that flows from joy that is founded on the one fundamental fact. Jesus is king. There was this, uh, there's another optimist joke that only those of you that lived in the 80s will get. It's a, how do you tell an optimistic German from an optimistic uh, from a pessimistic German? How do you tell an optimistic German from a pessimistic German? The optimist studies English. The pessimist studies Russian. It's like, it's just, as your friend, what language are you studying? What future are you preparing for? What, what, what language are you learning right now? Are you learning the language of Christ is Lord? He's got this. Or are you watching that one news channel that gives you tons of doom with a lot of uh, antidepressant ads in between? Christ is Lord. Friends, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we rejoice because the righteous one has taken the throne. And the idea that I'm suggesting here is that if we don't know how to rejoice in Christ we really should have no business talking about ruling and subduing. What I would argue for is a rejoice-filled ruling and subduing. I would also argue against a thing that is just rejoicing and no ruling and subduing. We need both, but there is an order to these things. Finally, I want to just remind you that Jesus Christ has shown us a clear pattern of how to take ground, of how to work these two tensions of what we have in heaven and what is on earth. This is his life, and it's the pattern that we can use to take ground. Number one, you have something in heaven, and you do. Your citizenship is in heaven. Christ is Lord. You have, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Step one, take what you have in heaven, put flesh on it, incarnate it, put it to work somewhere. This is, this is step one of saving a thing. Take what you have in heaven, put flesh on it, put it to work somewhere, bring it down into earth. It can't just exist as a spiritual idea. Number two, while you're using that thing, you will at some point endure some kind of crucifixion where you will be tested and you will get to decide whether you want to stay righteous or jump over to the other team to avoid the pain. Stay righteous, 
Step two, stay righteous. Step three, let God vindicate you and let others see God vindicate you. And step four is, you know, I saw this this morning in the shower, rinse and repeat. The life to which we've been called is simply a bunch of little notes in the symphony of God. And what we're trying to do is to see what Paul saw out of his life, a kind of life where grace extends to more and more people that it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, just for communion, there's this moment when the disciples come back from, I guess you could suppose, you could call it one of their mission, first uh, short-term mission trips. And, you know, they all had matching T-shirts, you know, beach reach, <laughs> whatever. And uh, they came back from their first short-term mission trip, and they were super excited because the demons were, uh, were, were running at the, at the name of Christ. They had power and authority over demons. And these are young men, essentially, who are dominion forward. They, they love the idea of, like, power. They love the idea that something really bad is submitting to them, dominion forward. And Jesus corrects them and says, you don't, don't rejoice, guys. Don't rejoice over the benefits package. That's just a benefit. That's just a part. That's just coming because of something else. It's like, don't rejoice that the demons run for your name, are cast out. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And this is all we're talking about today. A proper rejoicing coupled with a proper ambition. That, friends, that's, that's, what, that's, that's always been the way. And God has allowed us to be reminded of that through our enemies. Fine. Let's get to work. Let's be full of joy, and let's take our own joyful journey through the institutions. Your job, your home, your church, your citizenship. Let's have some fun. Jesus is king. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'd like you to come and partake of this table, which is a symbol that this is all true. Because Jesus Christ has offered himself as a payment for your sins so that you can say the one thing nobody who hates you wants you to say, I am righteous in Christ. Come and partake.